So if you're joining with us today for the first time, we've actually been in a series over the last several months walking together through the book of Acts. And if you're new to Christianity, Acts is a historical account of the growth and the spread of the early Christian movement. It's the story, the engrossing story, of how this small little group of believers in Jerusalem grew into becoming the largest movement in human history. And the book of Acts tells their story. And today we're actually coming to the conclusion of this story. And so we're going to be walking together through chapter 28. Now, we're going to jump right into the text, but I want to kind of set it in its context so that if you're new, you might kind of catch up where we're at in the story. So last week, we saw that the Apostle Paul was with 276 other passengers on a cargo ship that was being battered in this crazy violent storm. And they wind up, after being lost at sea for two weeks, getting stranded on an island. They were shipwrecked, and they all had to jump in the water and swim to shore. And where we pick up the story today, they are bruised, they are beaten, they are battered, they are disoriented, they are cold and wet, and they are crawling to shore, and they are in need. Their need of warmth for their cold bodies, their need of food and shelter and lodging, and now they show up on this island that's called Malta. Now, if you're like, well, what's, tell me, like, where's Malta? What's that about? So Malta is about 200 miles south of the southern tip of Italy, and you're like, well, what is it like in Malta? Well, it's, uh, here's some pictures of Malta. Uh, there it is. It's gorgeous, right? Uh, Malta, there's another picture. There's another shot. So, you know, you don't need to feel too bad for them. Um, actually, actually, that's not true. They, they literally are in desperate straits. If they don't get help soon, they're all going to die. I mean, they, they've, they've had one meal over the course of two weeks. Again, they're cold, wet, disoriented. And so what they're in need of are some neighbors who will reach out with practical love. And in the good providence of God, they look up, beaten and bedraggled and cold and wet as they are. And ahead of them are, it's an island full of these lovely neighbors in uh, Malta. And look what it says. The native people showed us unusual kindness. The word in Greek is the word from which we get, we get the term philanthropy, which is a conjunction of two words, which means the lover of humanity. And you know, when you are in the depth of, of need, what you want is somebody who reaches out to you with practical love, who will exude the love of humanity. And that is who they looked up and they met, this Maltese people, they're coming towards them. And they, they kindled a fire for them and they welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. And so they're all, you know, wet and they're now warming themselves by this fire. And where's Paul? Well, interestingly, Paul is out gathering brushwood for the fire. Look at the text. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, which I don't know about you, but I just love this picture of Paul. You know, here is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the great prophet of God, the author of half of the New Testament, and Paul the servant, who is gathering sticks to warm his friends by the fire. And, um, and as he throws this bundle of sticks in, strangely, this, this snake, a viper, jumps out and latches itself to Paul's hand. And it fastened itself to his hand. And 
Paul is probably, th- I mean, it's just like, like, what? Like, really? This now? You know, after the imprisonment for two years and the storm at sea and the shipwreck and swimming to shore, now we're just trying to warm ourselves by the fire and now there's this snake on my hand. And, um, and, and I don't know what Paul's thinking, but we do get a window into what the Maltese people are thinking because look at what it says. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, They said to one another, no doubt this guy's a murderer. (laughs) Though he has escaped from the sea, Lady Justice has not allowed him to live. You know, clearly this is bad karma. You know, what comes around goes around. And this guy had what was coming to him. And, you know, it's interestingly, it's interesting because in some ways they're not wrong. Paul actually had in his past some dark secrets, didn't he? He, he, he described himself as a blasphemer and a, a, a violent man. He colluded together to murder Christians. And yet, Paul is not operating in this moment on the logic of karma. Instead, Paul operates out of a better and deeper logic. It's the logic of grace. <laughs> Look what happens next. He shook off the creature into the fire, and he suffered no harm. You know, I just love Paul in this moment. You know, he's just like, I just imagine, you know, Taylor Swift coming on in the background, you know, haters going to hate, 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 hate. The player's going to play, 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 you know, shake it off, shake it off. You know, like, Paul's just like, hey, you know, like, of course, a snake, and we're just going to shake the thing off. And there it goes, flies off, and he suffers no harm. And now the, uh, the, the natives on the island changed their tune. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited for a long time and saw that no misfortune had come to him, they changed their minds and they said, he's a god. <laughs> well, the, 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 the inhabitants are not the only ones that reach out and show hospitality the chief man on the island actually welcomes them all in and provides them shelter and room and board for three months. Look at what it says. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, a man named Pluvius, who received us and entertained us hospitably, hospitably for three days. So he brought him in, gave all these hungry, port, like this big, I imagine this big party, this big feast. And then he continues to put them up for the next three months, and even as Publius reaches out and shows hospitality and care, his care is then reciprocated by the care and love of the Apostle Paul. Look what it says. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. By the way, you try to say Publius multiple times up front of, in front of a group of people. It's hard. Anyway, that's my problem, not yours. And Paul visited him and prayed. And putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases came up and they were cured, and they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So Paul uh, provides healing and care for people on that island. And then again, the islanders then reciprocate. They care for them over the course of three months. They load them up with everything they need. And finally, after three months, the time has come for them to set sail and to continue their journey. Do you remember where they're headed? They're on their way to Rome. And look what it says. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria. So this is another large cargo ship on its way to Rome with a bunch of grain. And with the twin gods as a figurehead, you're like, what were the twin, what were the figureheads? It was the twin gods, I guess. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. So they, they, 
harbor at Syracuse, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Patchouli. And so this is now a port city that's just south of Rome, and so from here, they're going to continue on into Rome. And there, it's interesting, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. So again, they are the recipients of hospitality and care during this period of hardship. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Apius and three taverns to meet us. I don't know what three taverns was. Apparently, it was a city. It sounds like a pub, you know? Like they came, the brothers came and met us at the pub, you know? And we had some Guinness and we hung out. And, um, and on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. It's interesting, Paul has had a long, arduous journey. And he is now going to go to Rome where he's got to testify he thinks before Caesar, Caesar Nero. And he's still got a little bit of trepidation, but here he takes courage with the help of some friends. He's got some brothers and sisters there that come and encourage him, and he takes courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was actually allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. So he gets to Rome, and he's under house arrest. He's got one guard who's chained to him. And what is he doing while he is in Rome? What's the first thing that he does? I find this interesting. As you read on, you discover that Paul calls all of the leaders of the synagogues in the city of Jerusalem, I mean, in the city of Rome. So these are all the Jewish leaders and authorities. Now, if you remember, who were the people that had it out for Paul in Jerusalem? It were the leaders among the, the, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And so they were some scary folks for Paul. These were the religious zealots who were very zealous for the law. Now he goes to Rome. Who's the first people he calls to himself to come and visit him, but the same leaders that might have it out for him? So this was a courageous, bold move. What does he do when he gathers them together? Well, first he gives a defense. He basically says, look, I'm not guilty. I don't know what you've heard about me. Maybe rumors have traveled here, but I'm not guilty. But then look at what he says. He appointed a day, and not just these leaders, but they start bringing all kinds of people, uh, Jews probably from all over the synagogues in Rome. There was a sizable population of Jews in Rome, and they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. So what does Paul do when he finally gets to Jerusalem? He does what he's been doing his entire life. He keeps, actually his entire converted life, he continues to bear witness to Jesus in some pretty risky places. But it's not just there. Paul sets up shop in Rome in this little rented house, and he's under house arrest. It's a pretty gentle house arrest, but listen to the final, final verses of the book of Acts. Here's how it closes. And he lived there two whole years at his own expense. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. 
And so Paul continues to do this work. He welcomes all. He welcomes the believing people and the unbelieving people and the Jewish people and and the Gentile people and the the high-ranking Roman officials and the centurion guards and the the, the slave class and, and the men and the women. They all are coming, and he teaches them about Jesus. The gospel continues to move forward in Rome, and the book of Acts ends. But it ends kind of on a cliffhanger. I don't know if you've seen Across the Spider-Verse. Anybody, you know, like, the movie, like, I, arguably one of the greatest animated films of all times. Amen. Thank you. Is that it? Just one? Just one witness in the house? Nobody else can testify? So, Across the Spider-Verse, you know, it ends, like, you're, you're, you're tra- like it's kind of like takes you on this roller coaster ride, and you're, you're going all the way through, and you get to the end, and you're just like, it doesn't, it, like, ends on a cliffhanger. And they're waiting, like it ended with a sequel that's needed to be made. And Acts ends a little bit like that, at least for me, and for most readers, because Paul has been on this roller coaster ride since he's been in Jerusalem, you know, in prison and unjustly tried and all this stuff. And he finally gets to Rome and he's appealed to Caesar. And you're like, is he going to stand before Caesar? Is he going to be released? Is he going to be executed? Like, what's going to happen? And Luke doesn't tell us, it's a cliffhanger. Why does he end the gospel? Why does he end the book like that? Well, church history tells us that Paul eventually was released after two years of imprisonment. He maybe made his way all the way to Spain, and he was eventually arrested again by Caesar Nero, only this time he wouldn't end so well. This time he would testify about the gospel to Caesar, and this time his head would be chopped off. So Luke doesn't go all the way there. Instead, he ends here. And I think probably the reason for that is Luke has not been so much concerned in his gospel to tell us the story of Paul. This is more than the story of Paul or Peter or any of the other church leaders. The book of Acts is more about the story of the gospel and its movement. And here, Luke ends his account because here now the gospel has traveled from Jerusalem and out through Judea and Samaria, and now it's finally moved to the ends of the earth. It's now finally in the very heart of the empire, and the name of Jesus is being made known, and the book of Acts ends. Now, what I want to do right now is is I want to circle back, and I want to highlight for you a phrase that caught my attention when I began studying this text two weeks ago. And I remember reading through this, and it struck me kind of like, and so that I, I underlined it. And um, the phrase was this. It's up in verse 14. And it's a simple phrase. By the way, that's my Bible. I took a little screenshot for you just in case. And it's the phrase, and so we came to Rome. And I underlined it. Because for me, it read so casual, so nonchalantly, you know, and so we came to Rome, you know, it made it sound so easy, like we, and so we arrived at Rome, you know, like it was easy, and of course, if you've been reading through this account, you know, the journey to Rome was anything but easy. It was only through many dangers, toils, and snares that they would eventually make their way to Rome. It was only after getting jumped and beat up in Jerusalem and taken into custody by the Romans and narrowly narrowly escaping an assassination attempt on his life 
and facing trial after unjust trial before first religious leaders and then Felix and then Festus and then Agrippa and then languishing in prison for two years and then being lost and hungry at sea for two weeks and then being shipwrecked on a reef and then having to swim through crazy waves to the shore only to get bit by a snake. Only after all of that drama would he finally come to Rome. And then after going through this whole arduous journey, I think what struck me, when he gets to Rome, what does Paul do? Paul does what he always does. He keeps fighting. He keeps courageously and boldly testifying to Jesus. And it just struck me that after all of that, Paul gets there and he's still fighting. He's still unmoved. He's still going strong. You know, I was, um, I was, I was thinking this week about a man in my congregation in Albuquerque. His name was Bruce Hervey. And he was in his 80s. He was one of the best guys in our whole congregation. Such a sweet, godly man. And I remember he had some serious heart issues and was rushed to the hospital. And his family called me, and they were very concerned. They said, Josh, I, I think um, dad only has less than 24 hours to live. And so I rushed to the hospital so that I could visit Bruce, you know, this dear, dear Bruce, you know. And as I was driving to the hospital, the passage that came to mind was uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, where Paul writes this, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. And so I got there, and I do what I do when I walk into a hospital room and somebody is barely conscious, their eyes are closed, they're attached to those machines, they're breathing heavily, and I just started reading the Bible over Bruce. And I opened up this passage, and I just said, Bruce, I want to read this passage over you. I was thinking about this as I, as I thought about you and your life. And I read this passage over him about Paul fighting the good fight, about keeping the faith. And, um, and after I was done reading the passage, Bruce opened his eyes, and he looked over at me, and he said, Josh, I'm not done fighting yet. <laughs> I was like, Okay. <laughs> And you know, Bruce, about three days later, walked out of that hospital, went home and lived another, I don't know, six, eight, 12 months. And he kept fighting, he kept running the race. And I thought about that when I was thinking about the, here's Paul, Paul's like, look, I'm not finished yet. Like, you haven't scared this out of me. Like, you've traumatized me, you've brutalized me, but I'm not done, I'm gonna keep going. And you know, the word that came to mind the word that I think describes what we're witnessing here, a word that I think is becoming increasingly absent in the experience of many Americans, is this word, resilience. What is resilience? I mean, here's Paul is the, the consummate resilient witness. What is resilient? It is toughness. It is the ability to spring back into shape and recover quickly from difficulties. Resilience is its toughness. You know, in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, some of you may have read this book. I read it 
not long ago, by authors uh, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. But they, in this book, it's interesting, they're kind of doing a diagnosis of, of American culture. And in their diagnosis, they, they distinguish between three kinds of things. And the first kind of things are fragile things. Uh, they said like teacups. You know, they break easily and they cannot heal themselves. And so you must handle them gently and keep them away from toddlers, right? And then there are other things that are resilient, like plastic cups. And they can withstand shocks. You drop them on the ground, they bounce, bounce back. And even if they fall, you know, they are not broken. But then he said there's a third kind of thing. And he says these kinds of things are what he calls anti-fragile. And they, they're, they're interesting because they actually require stress and challenge in order to actually cultivate resilience. And so they list a few things, bones and muscles, children are anti-fragile. They need stress and challenges in order to build endurance and strength and endurance. So there's muscles and there's bones. And you know what else is anti-fragile? Faith. Without stress, without challenges, your faith will not strengthen and grow. And it's, it's ironic, isn't it? Because so many uh, Americans, I mean, we go to faith. Why? Well, so often we, we go to faith for the same reason why we go to a lot of different products on the marketplace. You know, we live in, you know, a culture where we expect an ever-increasing standard of living. We want things that are going to make us safe and happy. And so everyone's selling their wares to us and promise that if you buy this product, if you have this trip, if you get this type of insurance, you will be safe and happy. And religious leaders go selling their religious wares, promising that if you just trust in Jesus, he will make your life safe and happy. He'll give you your best life now. But of course, that's not at all what's on offer. In fact, you know, many people go to God in order to get away from the hard thing that is actually the thing that would build endurance and resilience in your life. Or, or put it like this, God's interest is in building in us a deeper structure within our soul and heart to not simply be the people that get rescued out of things, but become, become the kind of people that actually endure things well and with character and with virtue. James puts it like this, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In other words, when you go through those stressors and challenges, it does something in you. It does something to you. It builds you up inside. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may become mature and complete, not lacking anything. Or put it like this, like, you want, you want big faith. You know, a lot of us want big faith. You need big problems for big faith. Well, some of you are like, well, fine, I'll take little faith, God. Little, too many problems, you know. More little faith, you know. But, but listen, Problems and difficulties begin to develop something in us. It strengthens us. You know, um, and, and all of the great sages, all the great luminaries throughout human history have always known this. Of course, you know this in your own experience. There's not a person among us who wouldn't say that the most important lessons you ever learned in life were not the lessons you learned when everything was well. 
It was when you were going through trials. We all know that. And the sages and luminaries have taught us this. You know, this is great. A sage, a Chinese philosopher from the fourth century uh, BC whose name is Mincius, and he put it like this. When heaven is about to confer a great responsibility on any man, it will exercise his mind with suffering, subject his sinews and bones to hard work, expose his body to hunger, put him to poverty, place obstacles in the paths of his deeds so as to stimulate his mind, harden his nature, and improve wherever he is incompetent. You know, the stories that we love the best, you know, um, follow this whole narrative. You know, have you heard of the hero's journey, you know, in um, literature, in film, they talk about this. It's the, it's the narrative arc of every great story. The hero always has to go through an ordeal in order to become the kind of person who's ready for the job that they have. And listen, you and I have been invited into a journey with Jesus so that we can grow into being particular kinds of people. And one of the things that molds and shapes us into being those kinds of people is trials and suffering. There are some virtues and character in your life that will only grow at the long end of hardship, and there is no other way to grow into that character. But listen, I, I think you know this to be true. It's not a given that when you go through trials and hardships that you will get to that place of maturity and growth because I think a lot of us we have come to expect that, like, no, this shouldn't happen. You know, I'm, I'm an American. You know, I have the person, you know, I have the right to happiness and life and liberty and so on and so on. Like, I don't have a right to this sort of thing. And, and so we're just like, we, we, and, and, and we get disoriented. People deconstruct in their faith. You think I'm doing something wrong. Something is wrong with me. Something's wrong with God. Something's wrong with the church. Something's wrong with my Maybe nothing is actually out of whack. Maybe it's our perception of how our life ought to be going that is out of whack. And so there, there comes, we need to have a new perspective. And I think Paul teaches us in our text how to endure our trials in such a way so that it might actually lead to a resilient soul. And I just want to tick through three simple things in closing that I think we see in Paul in this text that led him to be a resilient witness to the gospel, that if we are to embrace these things, we may also be led into becoming more resilient witnesses to the love of God and Jesus. Number one is this, do not be surprised. Now, we talked about this last week. So I don't want to belabor a point. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I guess I think this is important as your pastor. Listen, you know, again, so often when Christians go through hardship, it becomes a cause for deconstruction. Oh my gosh, why is this happening to me? This shouldn't happen to a follower of Jesus like me. And we are, it's a challenge and a problem to our faith. But we said this last week, listen, in the first century, Hardship and suffering and challenge. A shipwreck, getting beat up and jumped in Jerusalem, being put on an unjust trial, being held against his will for two years was not a challenge and problem for Paul's faith. It was what he expected in his life of faith. And the New Testament authors tell us again and again stuff like this. Dear friends, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, don't misunderstand. Listen to me very carefully. Do not think about your trials as moments where God is up in heaven and God's like, hey, you know, what Josh really needs right now is some hardship in his life, so I'm going to move the chess piece over here. Take that little bit of evil and suffering, and then I'm going to cause this in your life and cause this in your life and cause this in your life. As if God is some cosmic killjoy up in the sky who's intent on maneuvering the forces of evil on the earth. Listen. Listen. God is out to heal creation. He is out to drive evil out of the world. God's role in the world is not to manipulate evil like pieces on the board in order to make your life miserable. And yet, listen, in this time of darkness and sin, where evil is actually chaotic and inexplicable and there is rank, dark evil that you cannot, you don't blame God for that. There are forces of darkness, spiritual forces of darkness. There are demons. There is the devil. There is human sinfulness. That is, so we live in a world full of chaotic, and so to live in this world on this side of new creation is to inhabit a world that is gonna experience darkness. But here is what the Bible says. It's not that God is a cosmic killjoy who is orchestrating evil. Rather, God is the brilliant God of redemption who is able to turn our mourning into dancing and who can bring beauty from ashes. And you can hold on to that. God can use whatever you are walking through, whatever valley you're in right now, and he can do something of worth and value in your soul, no matter how dark the valley gets. And listen, there is testimony after testimony after testimony of humans who have walked through the darkest kinds of evil in this world. And they have come out on the other side, and they are not, they are not broken, they have not given up, they have held on to faith because they did not expect the world to be, there is something evil at work in this world, but God is stronger than what's at work in this world. But do not be surprised because in the meantime, as we wait for new creation, you will experience trials. Secondly, do not go alone. Listen, the Apostle Paul, throughout our story, he is vulnerable and need, I, like, like, you're kind of reading through the, you know, like, if your view of Paul is, is, is he some, like, you know, lone ranger? You know, you think about, like, the great kind of American hero, you know, comes into the, you know, the town, you know, on the horse, you know, <laughs> Heil Silver, you know, whatever. And, and it's like the, the, the lone soul battle-worn ranger. You do not find that heroic archetype in Scripture. Instead, what you find is a man like the Apostle Paul who in the midst of his arduous journey is sustained and helped along the way by friends. You know, in his journey from Caesarea on up, before he got into the ship in Alexandria, he stopped and was encouraged by the family of God. And then he gets to this island and he is cold and wet like everyone else and they are given warmth from a community of neighbors 
with whom they were willing to be vulnerable. They continued on and they were supplied by their ship, not by their own resources. This was an interdependent human who recognized that he could not walk this journey alone. And then he goes up and before he walks into a very terrifying place, you know, Rome with all the stuff he's called to do, he takes courage where? Among friends. And listen, you cannot walk this journey alone. And whatever darkness you're in right now, like, I know, like, you, you almost feel like I've got to hide, I've got to present well, I've got to post pictures on myself, of myself on Instagram that are carefully curated, and I'm falling apart inside, and my world is falling apart, but nobody can know because I've got to present. Listen, that is the worst way to try to walk through pain. The only way for us to truly become a resilient people is to surround ourselves with friends and with companions on this journey with whom we can be open and vulnerable and we can express need and we can actually receive words and encouragement and help and resources and we can give. And in that kind of interdependent community, in the midst of suffering, you can actually grow stronger, not weaker. So do not be surprised. Do not go at it alone. And finally this. Lean in to the logic of grace. Again, you're like coming back. Like, the logic at work in the Maltese community was the logic of karma. It's the most sensible ideology, I would think. You know, like what goes around comes around, right? What comes around goes around, you know? Like quid quo pro, like you did this, well then, hey, you reap what you sow, you know? And in some ways, that's so much how our world functions. And it's logical to think that maybe that's how the universe functions. You know, the logic of the universe is a logic of karma. You know, like, hey, I don't, I don't know what's going on inside their life, but clearly, with whatever extra they're suffering, they must be guilty of something extra. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, their kids, are, oh, I don't know what they did as parents, you know, or I don't know what they were doing, you know, to experience that kind of suffering and pain, and they must be doing something, you know, and, and we have this, this, this lie of karma. And breaking into our story, right into the middle of Paul's arduous journey of suffering and pain, right into the middle of it, breaks a new and better and stronger kind of logic. And it's not the logic of karma, it is the logic of mercy and grace. You know, I love the language of Paul, the way he describes it. In 1 Timothy, he says this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. What did he carry with him all through his journey? By, Paul writes these words after walking all of this journey. And he just says, I thank God that he has given me strength. He, he's, he's, he's carried me through. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I am not defined by the worst and stupidest things I have ever done, and neither are you. Instead, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. But the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Listen, I know that circumstances around you can speak loudly. They can be like a megaphone, you know? 
But there is a stronger voice, a louder, more defining voice, and it's the voice of God spoken over our lives in Jesus Christ. It is the hope of God in the resurrection of Jesus, a hope that says no matter what Friday you have to face, no matter how long it feels like you are stuck on Saturday in the tomb, and it's dark, and it doesn't seem like there's any way out, because God has raised Jesus from the dead, you can hope and you can build your life on this truth that Sunday is coming. New creation is coming. Hope lives. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we confess that we ourselves are often tempted to give in to the darkness to let the voice of negativity and despair be dominant in our heart and life. But we just ask God that the word of the gospel might break into our souls and our lives afresh. And that you would give us hope in the face of our suffering. I pray God that you would give us friends in the midst of our pain. And I pray, oh God, that you would carry us through all of our Fridays and all of our Saturdays, all the way to Sunday. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, whose victory on the cross and in the resurrection defines cosmic history and says that ultimately the yes of new creation will have its final say. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.